All right, we are in this uh, middle of this series called Conflicted, where we are challenging ourselves to rethink how we deal with conflict in our life. Because one of the things we've said every week is we will experience conflict, right? No matter what it is. And we've been walking through different ways that we've experienced conflict, whether first week we talked about how we like to control the situation and the outcomes of our life. And we looked at, Jared led us through the example of Jacob and Esau uh, and how, how we like tend to maneuver and, and do things to, uh, to, to make it our best for us. And that often creates conflict. And we looked at how, a few weeks ago, we looked at how people from different perspectives, even though they may both be right in their own eyes or, you know, not, it's not somebody did something to another person, just different perspectives. How do we deal with that? And then uh, last week, Jared walked us through how we deal with kind of this passive aggressive nature that we have and always wanting to be validated and how that creates conflict internally and with others. And it brings us to a point of really needing to understand that God's value, our, our value is found in God's view of us, not even our own view of us or others' view of us. And so today we're going to talk about another type of conflict that I think you and I probably deal with the most. And it's probably the most difficult one to actually get our heads around or to learn to deal with the right way in the long term. And it's when somebody does something wrong to us. And I'm going to call this one today, how do we learn how to fight right? How do we learn how to fight right when somebody actually does something that hurts us? And the truth is, we can sit here and immediately, I I know even in my mind as I say that, the last time that that happened, you know, pops into my mind. Or maybe I'm in the midst of dealing with it. Somebody did something to me this week and it is just still sitting in me and I, I haven't dealt with it. And there's this internal conflict. There's this conflict when that name or that image just pops into my mind of what I'm feeling. And we, we handle this kind of conflict all kinds of different ways, don't we? I mean, you think about it. Maybe when you're hurt, you're a silent treatment kind of person. You just shut down, distance yourself push back. Your punishment to them is to not even say anything to them, to not even act like they exist. You could be even living in the same home with this person, and you just walk by like they're not even there, and you just create this silent treatment. Or maybe you're like the perfect texter, right? And you spend hours composing the perfect text, going over every word, how you want to say it, what kind of little emojis you want to use, all of this stuff that is going to, when it hits their phone, it's going to hit like a bomb, right? And like, boom, I got you. You know, I got you back. Or maybe this is what I do often. I sit here and I've been, you know, when I'm hurt by somebody, I start playing in my mind what I'm going to say to them in person the next time I see them. Like I start writing out a speech. You know, I get, I know exactly what I'm going to say, how I want to say it, the tone I want to say it, all this kind of stuff. And then when I actually see them, I just like, I I lose it. And I'm like, ah, I'm just mad at you. And I go the other direction, you know, it's maybe you do that or maybe you, you plan your attack back, right? So whatever they did to you, you start kind of putting plans in place these multi-year plans that you're laying out to one day get this person back and you start laying the groundwork for it, become a master plan. I mean, the, the army should hire you to plan attacks because you have been scheming of how to get back at this person. Or maybe you're one who just, in the moment when you hurt, you just explode. 
and you just, in that minute, you explode without thought of repercussions or how much destruction or collateral damage it's going to cause, you just immediately respond and explode. Maybe there's other ways, but these are the ones that I have seen. And the truth is, we have all been hurt. And being hurt elicits a response, and it creates natural conflict between us and the offending party. And so what I want us to do today is to look at the best example we have of how to handle this type of conflict. And I think the best example is Christ, is Jesus. Because he walked through this life, and and it's recorded in the Gospels, the story of his life, of him dealing with a lot of conflict, a lot of people who did wrong to him, that he had to confront over issues of how they were doing wrong. And so I think there are typically three different ways that we experience wrong in our life. And Jesus dealt with these during his life in ministry, and we deal with them as well. And so I want to look at each one of them today, how we're wronged, how we typically respond, how Jesus responded, and then how we can step into that kind of response and step out of our response. And so let's jump into it. I think the the first way that you and I are often wronged is when people are sinful, right? They just sin. They do something wrong. And here's what I mean by sinful. The definition, I would say, is when someone does something that is morally wrong that negatively impacts themselves, others, or cultural culture in general, right? They do something that is morally wrong that that hurts people. So stealing, lying, gossiping about someone, cheating the system. These are all things that we can think of when people are sinful. They do something, and it impacts me. Somebody cheats at work, takes credit for something that you did. It, it maybe positively impacts them, but it's going to negatively impact you. Culturally, we can see when, you know, what's going on in the Russian-Ukraine conflict right now. There's so many things that where somebody's taking advantage of the other side. So we can see culture there are sinful things, and we all face situations like this. Maybe the person didn't mean to do it. But the fact is their actions, either intentional or unintentional, have impacted our lives negatively. That ever happened to you? It's happened to me, right? We've all dealt with people in our life that have done sinful things that have hurt us. Maybe, again, it's those closest to us. Maybe it's people we don't really like because we see a fault in their nature already and they continue to do it and bring hurt into our life. And what is our typical response? I think often our typical response is to play the blame and shame game. We see somebody do something wrong and we blame them and we use that wrong to then shame them into creating some control in their life. I've done this. I I remember I did this as a child to my brother for very small things. Like I would find him do something wrong and then I would use that and be like, I'm going to tell mom, I'm going to tell dad. We were at the mall one time. We had a little dog named Patches, a little poodle. And we had it at the mall walking around. And my brother, like we were at that, it was a two-level mall. We were at the second level. And he holds the dog up. And he like briefly hangs it over the edge and brings it back. And I was like, you can't do that to the dog. And he was like, I know. And I was like, I'm going to tell him. He's like, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. So for years, I, when Jay would do something, if I, I'd be like, Jay, will you get me a sandwich? He's like, no. I'm, I was like, I'm going to tell mom, you hung patches over the ledge. And then one day, I remember we were in the laundry room. Something was going, and like the, the, the lid of the thing fell and hit his hand. And my brother, we were like 10 or 11, my brother said a curse word. And I was like, oh, my gosh. 
You know, so I remembered that. I started using that. You know, Jay, if you don't do this for me, if you don't make up my bed, I'm going to tell mom and dad you cursed. You know, finally, I think by 18, he's like, go ahead, tell them, please. I need to get out from under this shame and guilt. But we do that, don't we? That's the blame and shame game. We blame them for everything bad that's happened in our life, whether they actually did it or not. It was, I can trace everything that's bad in my life to this one sinful act they did or use it to shame them in our relationship and for the rest of their life. And this is what we often do. We play this blame and shame game. And do you know who wins the blame and shame game? Nobody. Nobody does. Everybody is a loser in it because you play that with somebody and you make a mistake and guess what? You will. Do you know what's going to happen to you? They're going to play the blame and shame game with you. And so let's take a look at how Jesus dealt with people that were dealing with sin. And, and I, I just, there's a multitude of these in Scripture. I just grabbed three kind of stories of, uh, of how he dealt with this. And the first one is uh, the story of the woman at the well. This is found in John chapter 4. And if you're not familiar with this story, Jesus shows up with his disciples in the middle of the day. It's hot. They come to this well. The disciples get hungry. They go out looking for the nearest McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or whatever they can find. They bring some food back, and Jesus hangs out by the well. And this woman comes out in the middle of the day to draw water from the well, which if you culturally understand, that's a weird thing. They would normally come out in the morning when it's cool. She's coming out in the middle of the day. Honestly, we were going to find out because she didn't want to be around the other women because the blame and shame game was going on heavy in her life with how she was living. She interacts with Jesus, which is odd in itself that a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman would actually talk and that Jesus would show her any kind of dignity to even speak with her. But he even doesn't just speak with her. He asks her to draw him some water out of the well, to do something for him. And it begins this conversation about who she is, who he is, and he lets it be known through a simple question that she answers that he knows that she is living a lifestyle where she is living with multiple men. Uh, she is living in sexual sin. She is uh, not standing up for the commitments that she had made to her husband. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, Jesus had the opportunity like everybody else in her culture and in her city and her community at that time to, to play the blame and shame game. Could have easily said, you know what, you're a horrible person, uh, you owe me now, I'm going to treat you. you, you've realized I am someone special, I'm a prophet, I'm something unique, and so I can begin to control you by using the blame and shame game. But Jesus does something very different here in verse 27. Uh, he, he continued talking to her, asking her questions, offering her hope. In verse 27, we see what happens when the disciples come back. It says, then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said out loud, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman, after their conversation, left her water jar, which was basically her sustenance, her life, and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. She did not walk away with shame. She walked away with hope. In the middle of this, in the middle of an opportunity when it was very obvious she was in a sinful nature and her sin was hurting other people, Jesus didn't blame or shame in that moment. He sent her away with hope and so much hope that she brought people back to him. 
It's an amazing story. There's another story in John 8 of a woman caught in adultery, right? Another unique story uh, that these men of the town find a woman uh, basically in the midst of adultery, in the midst of committing adultery, and they drag her out of the bed and bring her in front of Jesus and say, what should we do with her? The law says that we should stone her. And I love Jesus' response here because he understood what was happening here, that they actually set this woman up. Like they set this whole circumstance up so they could catch her and bring her before Jesus. They were manipulating her, creating a circumstance uh, where she knew she was going to be used. And the first thing Jesus was like, where's the guy? Why, Why just her? And anyway, in the midst of it, she's there surrounded by men ready to be stoned to death. And Jesus comes beside her, kneels down. And it says he began to write in the sand. And we don't know what he wrote, but what we do know is the question he asked, he's like, basically, you with, he who is without sin, may you cast the first stone. So maybe in the midst of the thing, he was writing beautiful things about her. Or maybe he was writing reminders to these men of the sin that they had in their life. I, I don't know. We can all add thoughts to that. But, but what he did in that moment, instead of joining the crowd, instead of getting ready to throw a stone and jump into the blame and shame game, Jesus, again, stops and brings healing right here, right? He brings healing. So he brought hope before. In this moment, he's bringing healing into this. And he's her advocate here. He does not become someone who is, you know, adding on here. He begins to advocate for her and says the men slowly walk away, all them. And I love what it says in verse 10 and 11 of, of John 8. It says this, then Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. He gave her healing. He gave her a purpose. He gave her a future to think about. So how did he deal? You know, he's bringing hope. He's bringing healing. And then there's one more story uh, that uh, I got to bring up. And it's the story of Zacchaeus, Luke 19. So Zacchaeus, if you remember from childhood, nursery rhymes is the wee little man. The, the short guy, but the thing that's more obvious about Zacchaeus is he was a tax collector. He was a Jewish tax collector who had been cheating and stealing his own brothers and sisters uh, to, to, to in, uh, empower and enrich himself and enrich the Roman government, the occupiers of this land. He was basically a spy, a thief. Uh, he was hated by everybody, and as Jesus is coming into this town, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree And Jesus calls him and says, let me go to your home for dinner. Crazy. It's just crazy. This guy who is one of the most hated, sinful people in the the community, in in their culture at that moment, Jesus points and says, I want to spend time with you. That's just, so you think about what he brought, healing and hope. And I love in this moment when Jesus, they come together and he comes into the house And we're going to read in verse 7 through 9 what happens. It says, And then when they saw it, they all grumbled, everybody. And he had gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said before the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to to him, Today salvation has come to this house. And in the midst of sin, Jesus brought help. He brought restoration. And he brought a, a way for this man, Zacchaeus, not only to experience salvation, but to deal with the consequences of his sin, to repay and to change who he was and, and how he lived. So Jesus did not use this blame game, right? 
blame and shame game. He brought hope, healing, and help. And the easiest way for me to say it, what was his response? Jesus, when he dealt with sinners, he chose to forgive and move forward. Not blame and shame, but forgive and move forward. Move forward doesn't always mean forgetting, you know, or not dealing with the sin. He even told the lake, like, go and sin no more. Zacchaeus said, I will make restitution. He dealt with the sin, but he forgave and moved forward. Even in Matthew 18, Peter's talking to him and he says, all right, Jesus, how many times should we forgive when we have been wronged? And Peter, trying to be like super, you know, religious, was like, should we forgive seven times? It's like Peter standing in front of the other disciples and like, these jokers over here would probably only forgive people once. I would do it seven times. Is that right, Jesus? And Jesus looked at Peter and go, you know, not seven, but I tell you 70 times seven, which is basically every time. There's not a sin, there's not a time that we should not approach with forgiveness and the ability to move forward. So how do we, how do we step into this? Because this is not easy, right? I, I, we can write down, hey, let's forgive and move forward. But there's a truth is we have to change how we think and what we do to actually do this. So, so how do we step into this? How do we embrace this kind of forgiving and move forward? I think there's a couple of things to think about. One is you have to release your responsibility to be the judge. It's not, it's not a role God called any of us to do, to be. You are not the judge because you do not have ultimate love and understanding and complete wisdom and knowledge of a circumstance. So you can't be an accurate judge. So you have to release the responsibility to judge. And then we have to remember that we have a sinful nature as well, right? I, as much as this person has done this to me, maybe I haven't done it to them, but I've done it to other people. I have, I have been caught in sin as well. So I have to remember that my sinful nature, and then I have to rely on the power of God's forgiveness. That God's forgiveness is actually that I, when I was forgiven, when I've experienced the forgiveness of God, it's easier to allow that forgiveness to flow through me. When, I want you to hear this. Forgiveness is, is like a, it's not something that I can conjure up from my internal self. True forgiveness. True forgiveness comes when I have experienced the forgiveness of God in my life, and then I have something to share. Then I have something to give out. It's why he says, if you don't forgive, you haven't experienced forgiveness. It's not a, he's not telling you, you better forgive. So if you want to be forgiven, he's saying, but if you have been forgiven, it can't help but then flow out of you. But it, the barriers to it flowing is when we think we're the judge or we think we're perfect and we have forgotten our sinful nature. So when somebody has sinned against you, don't play the blame and shame game. Instead, forgive and move forward. Remember you're not the judge. Remember your sinful nature and rely on God's forgiveness. But there's a second thing that, second way that I think we experience pain in our life. It's not just when people stumble and sin and unintentionally do stuff. I, I think there's also something that's, that's more evil than that. And it's when people are sinister when they actually want evil. And the definition I would say is when someone works to intentionally bring harm to another person or a group of people. This is like abuse, backstabbing, abandonment. We see it in racism. We see it in war. It's all throughout our our own personal lives and our culture. When people are actually working to do harm. And you've probably experienced it at some point in your life. When somebody has hurt you on purpose. We grow resentful, stress, 
begins to come up in our life. We begin to grow spiteful and bitter in our life. We, with this pain, we don't know what to do with it, especially when it's come from those close to us. How do we deal with it? And I think typically our typical response is this, what I call anger, revenge, repeat. Anger, revenge, repeat. I get angry. I bring revenge on somebody. I hurt them back. And guess what? The cycle repeats itself. I remember when I was growing up, like first learning to take it, not learning to take a shower. Like I guess you, you step into that at some point. But I remember I got the, the shampoo bottle. And if you remember the shampoo bottle, they always just say, wash, rinse, repeat. And I was thinking one day deep in the shower, like deep thoughts in the shower. I was like, if I do this, I'll never get out of the shower. Because I'll just keep washing, rinsing, and repeating. Like it just will keep going over and over again. And the truth is, this is what happens when we live this anger, revenge, repeat. We end up doing nothing but perpetuating and amplifying evil and pain. When hurt, when you receive hurt, and all you do is to get angry and then plot your revenge, it's just going to repeat this cycle. But that's often how we live. It's often our natural response. So how did Jesus deal with this? There's a couple of instances I want to grab. One is a teaching that he gave us and then an experience that he went through. And I think what we're going to see is his teaching on this lined up with how he actually lived this out when he was dealing with it, when there were people, sinister people in his life, plotting his literal death. And so the first thing we see is a teaching from Matthew 5. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount at this point, his most famous teaching. We've done a whole series on this. And it's one of these times where he is just laying out truth after truth, principle after principle. And he comes to this idea of how do you handle it when you're hurt, when people are out to get you. And in Matthew 5, he lays this out in verse 43 and 44. And he says this, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, new principle, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't get it. Like, I, this is not one that I love, right? I would much, I like the first iteration, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's easier to do. It's nice to do. But this is what Jesus, Jesus is breaking the cycle here of anger, revenge, repeat. He's saying we've got to stop it. If we are truly image bearers of God, if we are reflecting God's love and hope and peace to this world, we have to stop the cycle. And you stop the cycle by loving your enemies and not only just loving them, but praying for the ones who persecute you. Spending your time with the creator of this world, the conversations you're having with God, the creator, spending that time praying for those that are hurting you. It's amazing. And it's a whole, what he teaches us here is, again, there was a whole sermon we did on this. It's changing our mindset of how we view our enemies and how we view those that hurt us. So it's a great teaching, but the truth is, you know, Jesus could teach that, but did he live it? And we see that he did when we look at the crucifixion and arrest uh, and his, his story of his death, specifically in Luke 23, you know, when, when Jesus was arrested and killed, what he did through this whole process is he spoke truth. He didn't inflame the situation. He gave his enemies no ammunition to continue the persecution of him, and ultimately he sought forgiveness for them. It's wild. The story, when you read Luke 23 or any other passage 
about the crucifixion, you see a man who is being railroaded for a crime, facing unjust persecution, being beat within an inch of his life, and then displayed in a most humiliating way before a crowd of his peers and these people that just a few days ago were cheering his entry into Jerusalem, and now he is being crucified and killed, and he's facing not just the wrath of man, but the wrath of God on that cross. I don't know about you. If I was Jesus in that moment, and I had the ability of God the Father like rushing through, I'd have been like, all right, angel bros, let's show up. We're going, let me show you what's going to happen here. Like, I'm only going to take this so much, right? You're only going to get to hurt me so much. But Jesus took it to the very end. He held on to these principles till the very end. And we see it in verse 32 of Luke 23 when he says this. It says this, there were two others who were criminals that were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said in this moment after being crucified, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those are words, every time I read those, I just, it is, it's hard to fathom the strength within him to, to speak those words. I, I have never been persecuted to the point of almost dying. I've had my feelings hurt. I, I've faced emotionally deep pain. And I want to tell you, it is hard to seek forgiveness for those who hurt. But he did it. And why? Because I think we're going to learn something amazing from his response. His response is not the the avenge, the, the anger, revenge, repeat. Instead, it is to kill evil with kindness. To kill evil with kindness. Jesus stopped this cycle of anger, revenge, repeat. And instead of inflaming and, perpet- and perpetrate, uh, uh, inflaming and continuing evil in the world, he ended it. It didn't bounce off of him and hit others. Instead, he absorbed the wrath of both man and God on the cross, and he brought it to an end. He quenched the fire of evil instead of spreading it around. He didn't go to war. He received it and forgave it. He brought it in. What a beautiful example of how to deal and and to diminish evil in our world. Not repay evil with evil, because now we're just perpetuating it. Instead, we, we deal with it. So how do we embrace this? How do we embrace this idea of killing evil with kindness? And I think, one, we have to stop viewing ourselves as the ultimate avenger. Right? We are not Captain America, Iron Man, whoever your favorite avenger is, who will swoop in at the last moment, save the day, bring the guns blasting, and stand up and be like, we win. We win. That's not our job. That's already been done. Jesus has already done that on our behalf by doing, by putting an end to evil on the cross. And so we have to stop living, looking at ourselves as the ultimate avenger. It's not, a, it's not your job. Just like we're not the judge, we are not the ultimate avenger. But the second thing we have to do is instead of revenge, seek justice instead of revenge. Find ways to bring justice into these painful situations. This does not mean that we when we talk about killing with kindness, that we don't stand with those that are victims, that we don't stand up for ourselves. And we're just not this, you know, people just beat us, beat us, beat us. But we seek justice instead of revenge. 
And, and there's a whole sermon we can do on how, and we've done on how do we approach justice and how do we live justly and, and how do we do that instead of trying to avenge and be re- people of revenge. And then the third thing is in those moments you have to share the love and grace that you have personally experienced when you were also once an enemy of Christ. We were all, it says, enemies at times. We were all wicked in our ways. We were all sinful and separate from the love of God, but yet through Christ, we have been redeemed and restored. And it was through his love and grace that we experienced that. And so we should be a reflection of that to other people. This is hard. It's difficult. It's not easy to do. But if we want evil to diminish in this world, we have to kill it with kindness, with loving our enemy, praying for those who persecute us. So, How do we deal when people are sinful? Stop the blame and shame game, forgive and move forward. And then how do we deal with the sinister plots in our life instead of doing the uh, revenge, uh, the anger revenge and repeat, we instead kill evil with kindness. But there's a third type of pain here that I think we often deal with. And I think this is where it most often shows up personally in our daily lives and how we deal with people that are self-righteous, self-righteous. They're only look, and here, here's the way I would design, define that. It's when someone elevates their belief, their opinion, or perspective to ultimate and primary at the expense of the views of others. So this is when you belittle somebody, you mock them, even how we, our cancel culture that is out, that if you don't agree with me, you don't get to speak in this arena. We, we, be, we raise our view, our belief, our opinion, our perspective to ultimate and primary at the expense of everybody else's. This is rampant in our culture. There are only, two, there are only now two sides to an argument, my side and the wrong side. And if you aren't on my side, you shouldn't even be allowed to speak or be in the conversation. And so what's our typical response when we run into somebody who's self-righteous like this? We like to do this. We like to defend ourselves, our point of view. Then we dehumanize people by putting them a label on them. And then we look to destroy their voice or their perspective. Man, haven't we seen this the last couple weeks? With Supreme Court decisions that have come down, the gun violence that has gone on. We we put people into camps, right? You, You take the gun violence issue. You either are trying to take everybody's guns or you don't have a problem with our children being killed. Like, there's no in-between, right? You, people either put you way over here or way over there. You take the Roe versus Wade decision. You put people, there's a decision like, like if you're pro-choice, then you must hate babies. Let's kill all the babies. If you're a pro-life, then you hate women. You want to control everything about women. And we put it in these two camps and we only listen to our voice, our box, and we start to destroy or defend, destroy, dehumanize, and then destroy other people. We stopped having conversations. Stopped. We've started only having arguments. We tend to close our minds. We stop looking at others as people and see them only as a certain side or position. We attribute thoughts and actions to them that they have never even stated publicly or maybe even embraced. We take away their humanity and it becomes much easier to destroy them because we stop seeing them as a person and see them only as a position that they take. This is where self-righteousness leads us 
in our culture, to thinking my view, my thoughts, my opinions are always primary, always right. And we fight self-righteousness, honestly, with more self-righteousness. We pour more poison into the pot instead of trying to bring cleansing and clarity into what's going on. And self-righteousness, battling self-righteousness, is a, is a recipe for destruction. Recipe for destruction. How did Jesus deal with this? All right, because there, there were issues, and he walked into a culture where the, the Jewish people and the, the Jewish leaders of that time, the, the people were being manipulated and controlled uh, by, the, the, by the religious leaders and also by the Roman leaders of the time. There was injustice going on. There were, there were rabbis saying, this is the only way you can do it. If you're going to be a follower of Yahweh, a follower of God, you have to do these exact steps. And there were other camps that were all doing the same thing and they were creating factions and fighting amongst each other. And this is the culture Jesus walked into. And we see in Matthew 23, Jesus speaks boldly against this. And he says to the religious leaders, he, he, he cast out, he says, gives them seven woes. He says, let me tell you what you are. And he speaks to them. And he, he, at the point, he calls them hypocrites, blind guides. He calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tomb for creating a system of limited perspective and cultural control that if you don't do it this way or the way I say it, then you're ostracized, marginalized, and demonized. These were the religious leaders. These were the groups that he was dealing with. But I love what Jesus does in John 3. He takes one of these guys named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a man of the law, one of these who was part of the system who Jesus was coming to fight against and stand against and to show a different way. And it says in John 3 that Nicodemus came to him. And you know what they did? They didn't have a public debate. They didn't blind react to each other's TikToks back and forth. No. You know what they did? They sat down and had a conversation. And in John 3, it says this, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We, that, we already see in just the first two verses here that they have different views of what meaning to be sent by God is. And over uh, John chapter 3, they have a beautiful conversation which lays that, you know, comes to John 3.16, which we all know, most, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. But this is, John 3.16 is birthed out of two men, conflicting views, conflicting backgrounds, different, whole different viewpoints. One, they would, they would literally have viewed themselves as enemies, but they sat down and have a conversation. We see it again in, in Mark 10. There's a man that comes to Jesus. He's known in the Bible as the rich young ruler. And this man comes up to Jesus and he's trying to showcase his own righteousness. He's like, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of gives the, the basic answer, well, you must keep all the commandments. Don't, don't lie, don't still honor your father and mother. And he lays them out, the 10 commandments basically. And the man says, all of these I have done since birth. Like he is, he knew what the answer is gonna be and he knew he could answer it. And he's like dropping a big flex on Jesus. Like, let me show you, I am, I've done all that since birth. So now affirm me, affirm my self-righteousness, what I have done. Show all of these people here, these 
Because all the people following Jesus at that time were, were poor, had very little, many homeless, many young. And this man, this rich young ruler, this elite of society shows up and like, Jesus, affirm me. Like, I, I, just give me a pat on the back. So now I can walk around and saying, that popular guy, he's on my team too. And Jesus drops it on him. He calls out his, his uh, true God, which is his money. And he challenged him to step, to stop relying on his own perceived self-righteousness and instead trusting God's right way instead of his own. And the man walked away, we see in, in Mark 10, verses 20 and 22. It says, and then he said to him, teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth. And Jesus looking at him and, and see what it says next, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by this saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Do you see what they did here again though? Jesus didn't just call out this guy and be like, you're being a jerk, you know, get out of here. Out of love, it says, he had a conversation that says, if you really want what you're asking for, there's a pathway. Set aside your self-righteousness, your self-reliance, everything that you think you have built, and trust. Trust God. Would you actually trust him? Would you follow? And the man walked away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to do that. So what is Jesus' response here? Instead of this idea of what we do of defending and dehumanizing and destroying people, what Jesus does is have caring, clarifying conversations. When, when your self-righteousness or somebody else's self-righteousness comes to the forefront and it brings pain into your life, you're feeling like you're canceled or you want to cancel somebody else or you don't like this voice, you don't want to hear even this voice, stop and remember the way of peace, the way to deal with pain is to have caring, clarifying conversations. I could add more C words to that, like civil, calm, compromising, courteous, like actual conversations where you sit down around a meal, talk to each other, listen, don't argue. Because the truth is, is and we talked about this with the perspective a few weeks ago, honestly, we can learn more about how somebody came to a conclusion by learning how they journeyed there than us assuming how they got there. And allowing that person to stop just being a position they hold and instead be willing to remember that they are a person. Jesus was always willing to talk to those with whom he had differing viewpoints and opinions. The Gospels are filled with those stories. Jesus made his boldest statements and dealt with the most challenging topics, not when he had the largest audiences gathered, but instead he did it through personal conversations, small group gatherings, and intimate moments. He always remembered he was dealing with a person more than just people in general. So how do we embrace this? Be ready to invite those you disagree with into a personal conversation. Don't assume, just be willing to have a conversation. Second, be willing to admit that you don't have complete understanding or the complete perspective. No matter what the topic is, no matter what the issue is, you do not have complete understanding or the complete perspective. Third, be able to give yourself and others the freedom to experience growth and change. I think this is often the hardest. We don't allow other people to grow and change, and we won't allow ourselves. We say, I've, I've held on to this position in my life for so long, I can't let it go. It's who I am. Please grow, develop, allow new perspectives to grow and change who we are. 
These ideas of how to handle painful conflict are both beautiful and challenging, and I would love personally to walk through this life and constantly be able to forgive and move forward instead of playing the blame and shame game. I would love to kill evil with kindness instead of doing the anger revenge repeat, repeat cycle. I would love to have clarifying conversations all the time instead of just defending, dehumanizing, and destroying other people. And then I wish I didn't do these to other people. I wish I didn't sin against other people. I wish I didn't want harm against other people. And I guess I wish I didn't, wasn't self-righteous at times because I find myself on both sides of these. When I have experienced pain and I bring pain into life, but I fell at this regularly and I believe it's because I try to just do better at these, to just gin up enough courage in my life to do better instead of realizing these are birthed out of my relationship with Jesus and my willingness to allow his teachings and his truth to bring and bear fruit in my life. When I do this, it changes how I view myself and others. So what fruit am I talking about? What does a relationship with Jesus bring that helps us do this? And I think it's two things, and we'll close with this. One is self-control into my own life. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. I stopped trying to control everyone else and learned that the ability to control my feelings, thoughts, actions, and responses can be grown not by relying on my own self-righteousness, but instead on the right ways and the good ways and honorable ways that Christ has shown us and teaches us. Growing self-control, not just exploding, not just wanting to destroy or defend or to, or to bring anger into a situation and revenge into a situation. I learned self-control for myself. But then secondly, I grow compassion for others. I stop trying to win. I stop trying to impose my will and my ways upon others and instead start seeing people the way God does with compassion, with empathy, with love that can bring hope, healing, and help into their life. This is how you and I both experience and express the gospel of Jesus Christ through pain. This is how we fight right. We learn self-control being birthed out of the fruit of the Spirit, and we demonstrate compassion because we have experienced in our own life. That allows us to kill evil with kindness. To, instead of blaming, we forgive and move forward, and we are willing to have clarifying conversations. Which brings me to our question of the day. Am I using conflict as a weapon to perpetuate hurt, harm, and hate? Or as a tool to bring healing, hope, and harmony? It's a tool. Conflict's a tool. This kind of, when you are dealing with pain, when you are hurt, you have a tool through this conflict, this confrontation, to either perpetuate the hurt, the pain that's going on, or to bring healing and harmony into our life. That healing and harmony comes through this work of Jesus in us that then is poured out to other people. We you bow your head and close your eyes with me? This is a hard one. God, in the midst of this, I want to argue with you. I want to stand up for my rights. I want my opinions to matter more. I want my pain to be avenged. 
I want to be the judge and dispense rulings on those that have sinned against me. God, when I do that, it just perpetuates the pain. I get no peace. They get no peace. Our world gets no peace. God, help. Help me, help us to trust that you're a better judge than we ever will be that you will avenge us more than we ever could and that God your truth is more than my truth it's deeper whole it's holy and God I still need to learn and grow and understand in ways that I can't even fathom God I hate pain not something I wish for or want for myself or anybody in this room. But God, when it comes, when the pain comes, help us to learn to call out to you first instead of calling others' names. Or calling on them to owe us and to give back to us and to create revenge cycle that just keeps going. God, we need you in the midst of our calamity, in the midst of our pain, wherever we've experienced. God, let that be our prayer this morning.